Hey, it's Pastor Dudley Rutherford here with Godly Goosebumps. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. As you know, this podcast exists to tell stories, and some stories we just read, but others we do live interviews. And today I'm privileged uh, to have in studio uh, Casey Diaz, who wrote a book called, it's his life story, it's called The Shot Caller. Casey, welcome to Godly Goosebumps today. Thank you so much for having me. I think you know a little bit about our podcast. We're here to tell stories that only God can orchestrate, and we've tried to tell stories that when you hear them and you look back, you see where God was involved in every little detail of uh, the story, and I believe that your life and your story, you can see God's handprint all over. Do you agree, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I definitely do. And. Um, I know that those of you that are maybe you've never heard of Casey or read this book, uh, The Shot Caller, you probably aren't familiar with the details of this. I got to be honest with you, when I, I was in church one Sunday and a guy in the church gave me your book, and he said, hey, there's a guy that's been showing up at church, and he wrote this book called The Shot Caller. I didn't even know what a shot caller was. That's, that's, I just didn't know. Um, and since I've read the book, I've I've heard all kinds of people. I've heard the phrase many, many times. I just, I just didn't know uh, at at the time. Why don't you tell our listening audience just what that phrase means, and then we're going to get into your story. But what what is that phrase, the shot caller? In case someone's listening that that doesn't know what that phrase means, um, a shot caller is is a a phrase used mainly in in state prison, in the county jail, up to state prison, here in California mainly. Um, it's someone that has been given or voted into signing off on, on some pretty uh, violent acts, uh, moving of you know contraband in and out of state prison or the county jail here in Los Angeles. And um, some pretty heavy decisions can be signed off on, I- including the death of somebody's life, both in there or out here. Mm. I, I want to encourage everybody to stay with us with this entire interview because this will be one of the most remarkable stories that that you've ever heard, and I and I I just want to tell about something that that got to me when I was reading this book, and then we're going to go to the very beginning. But I just want everyone to know that when I was reading this book, it's it's pretty graphic. Uh, Casey was someone uh, who ended up being in prison. And, and should have stayed in prison, but God had a different plan for his life. But, you know, usually you read someone's testimony, and this, this is a book about his testimony. You know, you kind of you read some of the details, and you get on to the, the part where God redeems the person. And Casey's, in this book, it, it, it's just story after story of what his life was like before he became a Christian. And I got to tell you, I was reading this book. It was so graphic. It was so foreign to the way that I was raised. And that uh, I remember reading this stuff thinking, man, I, I cannot believe your life. I can't believe how, how, how bad everything is in your life and all the things that you had done wrong. And we're going to get into some of that because I want people to hear uh, the story of redemption. But you, I want them to know where you were before you were redeemed. But I'll never forget I was reading this book. I was just, it, it just gripped me. I mean, I, I got into it. I just I could not put the book down. Literally, I couldn't put the book down. And I remember thinking, man, this guy's life. And I turned the page, and it it said this. It said, and then I turned 16 years of age, and I about fell over. 
because it's 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 this is not things that you see a normal teenager involved with, but you were you were involved in some pretty bad things. So let's go back and talk about those first sixteen years. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born, and how you came uh, to live here in Los Angeles. Well, I was born in 1972 in El Salvador, uh, brought here when, when I was two, and uh, we landed in uh, the Pico Union, MacArthur Park area. Uh, if we were to describe uh, the jurisdiction of LAPD, that would be the, the Rampart District, which is known uh, historically as one of the most violent parts of Los Angeles. Um, when we got here, it was... Uh, you know, pretty normal. The gang culture really hadn't hit Los Angeles the way it would hit Los Angeles, you know, 10 years later. Um, but, you know, it, it was a normal no, normal program for me. I attended Hoover Street Elementary School in Los Angeles, uh, about, you know, a stone throw away from downtown Los Angeles. And um, pretty normal. We played, you know, sports, uh, it was a, a time where kids still came outside to play baseball, football, tag. So I grew up around all, all of that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, my, my grandma, I remember I, I talk about my grandma on here. Uh, we used to go and collect cans when we were, when I was little. And I looked forward to that. Uh, my grandma was uh, <laughs> a special lady, uh, just a special lady. I came to the States uh, with her. And um, so, you know, she, she's from a generation that can't sit still. They have to constantly be doing something. Okay. She didn't need to go, you know, collect cans, but she did. And for me, it was uh, it, it was cool. You know, I I, I would I wasn't ashamed of that or or embarrassed. Uh, I went with her, and uh, I remember even doing a little stick with a, and put a, a, a screw uh, on the tip of that or, or a nail, whatever I did with it, so I could reach into the dumpsters. And uh, get the cans or the bottles, and so we would do that. Uh, so very normal uh, as far as you know Los Angeles goes at that time. And um, uh, then it takes a little little twist because uh, here comes uh, you know the stage of tagging, break dancing hits Los Angeles. Uh, the tagging really took off, graffiti writing, and and so you start getting an introduction to. Um, you know, a little bit of criminal element there. Uh, but it was all fun and games at first. And right after that is when, um, at the age of 11, is when I get introduced to the street gang in Los Angeles. And tell me, go back just a little bit before that, because it's pretty graphic in your book, the relationship with your mom and your dad. And 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 it's, it's really a key part to the story, the, the way your dad treated your mom and what you saw as a boy growing up really before you got into gang violence yeah uh, with, with my dad um uh, it was a very difficult relationship um, this is someone that uh, didn't work uh, he sold drugs uh, heavy drinker and um, the, the the one thing that that he would always do was he, he would beat my mom and I mean beat my mom like a man would beat another man uh, so growing up seeing that that was my first uh, introduction, really, at violence. Um, there was not one week. I felt like it was every other day that uh, he was punching, and, and I mean, just, it was brutal. 
Yeah. I've found my mom so many times in the closet or passed out on the living room floor in her own pool, pool of blood. It, and it was a time where uh, domestic violence wasn't dealt with a heavy hand as it is now. Mm. Um, I mean, he, he got arrested so many times and he was out most of the time the same day. In worst case scenario, the next day he was out. So domestic violence was just looked at very differently back then. Uh, you know, and, and as a kid, you're, you're looking at your mom being beat, and there's only so much you can do. You know, I, I tried. I tried to go in between them. I tried to make them stop. You know, you're a kid. You can't, you can't stop them. And, and I grew very angry at, at, at him, uh, you know, because you're, you're growing and you're seeing my mom's a little lady, man. She's about four foot eleven, four foot ten. She's tiny, and you know he's about five foot seven. Uh, it's, it's a pretty big, you know, difference there. And and for her to be beat like that, I remember one time coming into a, the apartment, and there was a, a there was blood leading to our. We lived on our. I think it was the second floor, um, and there was a handprint. That was, it, it, I knew out, out of blood. Yes, and and it was like, it was like a streak of a hand, like somebody trying to hold on to something, and uh, on that particular day, I, I remember walking to the apartment, and there was a bathroom and a, a little closet, as you as a door opened, and sure enough, she was there in in a fetal position, and blood everywhere. I mean everywhere. So you'd come home and see this as a, as, as a boy every other day, and it fueled anger within you, and and, and it it it, it kind of haunted you growing up, right? I mean, it was just it just you hated your dad, and you even sometimes you had an opportunity to try to kill him a, a, at one point. Yeah, uh, there was uh, one uh, particular incident where he was just so drunk he had fallen asleep next to a gas um, uh, heater. And in Los Angeles, in the old buildings, they still have them. Uh, they look like accordions, very yes. heavy metal. Yeah. And I remember my uncle showing me how to turn it on and off. Uh, that's, how, you know, that's how I knew how to operate it. And uh, his head was next to the nozzle where the, he's where the there, gas. He's there passed out. He's passed out. And I turned it on. And, I mean, you could hear the, the whistling of the gas, you know, and... Uh, and we, I was there for maybe, I want to say, a couple minutes. Uh, and I, I knew, and this is where I, I think that my, th there's a switch that comes off that just is turned off uh, in my life. And I, and I think that's where it actually starts because I knew what I was doing. I wanted to do it. Mm. And I knew that this would stop this guy from beating my mom. And I was willing to do it. With no problem, so I, you know, I turned the gas on, and he's there, and uh, I believe that God, somehow, you know, now as an adult, I believe that God had my mom walk in on this incident. I remember her frightened to death. Uh, you know, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing? And she was very nervous, and she, you know, ran and turned it off. And I remember telling her, I, you know, I'll, I'll do it. You don't have to. I'll take the blame. I mean, I'm like eight years old at this moment, and I'm telling my mom, I'll take the blame. It's almost like I knew that I was doing wrong, but I didn't care because this would save her. Yeah. And, and it would, 
essentially saved me from yeah. watching this. Yeah, yeah. So, so you had a uh, this troubled youth watching this abuse from your dad, um, and you get involved in the gang violence. You end up in prison, but tell us, uh, you know, the gang violence a little bit in L.A. As far as I, I know, there's initiations and things. You probably went through all that, and you got recruited in there. But tell us some of the things that that ended up putting you into prison. You, you can. I don't mind you taking a few minutes and kind of sharing just a little bit of your testimony. But how? how what were the things that, that happened, a couple things that led you up to getting thrown in, in jail? Um, well, you know, by, by the age of eight, I also saw um, three men getting gunned down in our back alley. And um, again, if you go to those old buildings in Los Angeles, this was on uh, 9th and Kenmore. Uh, it's, it was a very heavy drug and uh, it, was, it was just horrible. Uh, at that time, and um, I was uh, sitting at, uh, in this fire escape on the third floor, and my and I it, it was some it was a place for me to always go to, especially when I knew that my mom was getting beat. You don't have a yard. You don't have a yard. You're just going up on the on the fire escape, and I'd sit there and dangle my feet from uh, from the fire escape, and on this particular moment, uh, there was three guys walking up the alley, and a guy drives, goes under the carport to my right, and he walks up to these three dudes and, and guns them down. And he doesn't know that I'm there. And uh, he puts rounds into all three of them. Uh, the first two die immediately. One of them is able to run and goes under a carport, and he's yelling for his mom. Mm. Uh, this is a grown man. you know, or It might not have been a grown man. He looked like a grown man to me. Sure. And and he executes him. He gets in his car. He doesn't run to his car. He simply walks to his car. Doesn't peel out. There's no there's no hurry. And gets in his car and it just drives off. So I see that. And I think there's little things uh, that start to kind of get deposited into my memory bank. And I start to look at life very cheap. Like you could, you could do this, and and it doesn't matter. Oh. And so at eleven, uh, I get introduced into this gang in Los Angeles, and uh, it becomes your family because your dad. You you don't have a relationship with your dad, a good relationship no. with your dad, and uh, so so the gang kind of becomes your family. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a common thing that happens. That's right? a very common thing that happens. Uh, the streets embrace you. The gang, it, it, it's. It's so, um, it's a false sense of what the real thing really is. And uh, this gang member, uh, his name's Ralph, he's writing on the floor, and I approach him. He was one of my buddies, one of the kids that I played baseball and football with, uh, his older brother. And I see him gang writing on the, on, on the floor, and I ask him, you know, what are you doing, what is that? And he tells me, gives, briefs me up on what a gang is and, and the culture of it. And I, I, we all started to notice that cars started coming into the front of our buildings, and they would always pick him up, and you know it just looked like fun. And that was my introduction. Uh, and a few, probably a few months later, is when I get jumped in, oh. and uh, then it takes a really bad turn for the worse. Um, I, I, for for whatever reason, this older gang member 
uh, by the name of Rabbit, and he was an icon uh, in Los Angeles, just very well known. He takes this liking to me because I guess I was a little guy, you know, 11 year old, and he puts me under his wing. And he's taking me to these parties, he's taking me to these hangouts, and everybody is looking at me like, you know, you know, the girls are going, oh, that's cute, you know, all that stuff, right? And so that kind of starts to, you know, fill me up with with wrong, you know, thinking. And uh, what I didn't know is how what made him so influential. And one of the things that is, he was very very violent. He takes me. We steal a car, and uh, he's driving down these alleys. I mean, just driving down these alleys, speeding. And I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're going to die in the in this in this car because he's not even looking. He's just going from one alley to another alley. If Cro- crossing streets. Just crossing streets. There's no, like, he's not slowing down. He, we're literally g- getting air as we go from alley to alley. Okay. And and, I'm, and I remember it was a little uh, Toyota. It was like a hatchback. It was probably like the first introduction to what a SUV was back then. Okay. Um, I, I forgot what the name of it, but uh, it was... So, so we're going, and he says to me, you know, we're going to go get uh, so-and-so uh, from the Southern Gang, and you're going with me. And so we go, we go and we're, we're hunting someone down, and uh, we catch him. We catch him slipping, and, and we get out of the car. He starts clobbering this guy, and then he takes out a screwdriver, and he starts stabbing him. And, I mean really stabbing him. And while this guy's on the floor, you know, I'm partaking of the jumping. Uh, I'm, you know, kicking and doing that thing. Trying to look cool. Trying to look cool, trying to fit in with him. Yeah. You know, and... So you're just a kid. Just a kid. Uh, and then he uh, hands the screwdriver to me. And the screwdriver's full of blood already. And he says to me, your turn. And at that moment, you don't have a choice. And I took the screwdriver, and that became my first stabbing at 11 years old. You remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. Is this where you stabbed the guy in the eye? Was it, no, this that's was, a different. This is another guy. Yes, yeah, this is a different. I'm much older when that happens. But that was my introduction to you know, uh, violence uh, by my own hands. And, he, you know, we get back to the neighborhood, and um, he's, he's boasting. Look at this dude, this dude, you know, you know, he's, he's telling them. About you. About me. And he's got, you know, this. and uh, He's just pumping me up in, in front of everybody. And that, because it's coming from him, starts to mean something. So I start liking the attention that it's giving me. And so, don't you feel like at that moment though your life was destined? I mean, looking back, that uh, once you once you start walking down that road, there's there's no turning back. There isn't. You're going to end up in prison one way or another if you choose that lifestyle. And you and to be honest with you, you look forward to that. You know, you you look forward to the first juvenile hall visit. You know, to the first you know police department and where you're arrested. Because that makes you credible, credible, you know, before the gang. 
And so shortly after that, I, I get uh, busted for a robbery and then for carjacking. It wasn't called carjacking back then. It was just a G- GTA, a Grand Theft Auto. And so it starts to progressively just get worse and worse. But my thing was I, I, I fell in love with, and I know this sounds sick, but I, I truly fell in love with, with stabbing somebody with a screwdriver. And so that became, that became my thing. And I started to get a, a big reputation in Los Angeles as the guy that if he catches you, He's gonna stab me with a screwdriver. That's his thing. And you know, I, I, I the guy Rabbit, this guy that gave me the who I did the first stabbing with, he ended up getting killed um, about a year into me knowing him. Really? And he was stabbed to death himself. He was. Yeah. He was stabbed to death himself. He was picking up his girlfriend at her high school and uh, you know, rival gang members got him. And stabbed him. And that was the end of him. And shortly after that, uh, you know, my reputation started to build. And it was just violence, man. Uh, um, I was known as someone that would go into, I would walk in. I didn't like drive-by shootings. I wasn't a fan of that at all. Um, For me, uh, walking into your neighborhood, walking into a rival territory, and stabbing somebody with a a screwdriver, that, that was... That was my thing, and everybody started to know that. L.A. is, as big as L.A. is, and as many gangs as L.A. has, it, it, you still, you, you start to, if, if you're somewhat of a name out there, it starts to bounce around. And, of course, you're going in and out of Juno Halls and right. probation camps. Right. Uh, people start taking notice of you. Again, I'm Dudley Rutherford with Godly Goosebumps, and we're interviewing uh, Casey Diaz, who wrote this book called The Shot Caller. And I uh, really want to encourage you to, if you can handle, if you can stomach it, uh, to pick this up and to read uh, this book, his life story. I want to get to what got you into prison. So you get involved with the violence, and it just keeps getting worse and worse, and you you, you kind of go up through the ranks and. You're, get, you're getting to be well-known, and you're committing all kinds of violent acts and, and uh, involved with gang activity. What was it that finally sent you off to prison for, for, that ended you up in Folsom Prison? Um, I want to jump, kind of jump to there because I want to talk about what happened when you got into prison and how, how I feel the same way as I'm reading the book. This stuff just turns, uh, turns in my stomach, but, and I want to get to how you, how you became a Christian, which— if anyone's listening up to this point, you wonder how how in the world did some guy like this get saved? But what what, what was it that finally ended you, you end up up in Folsom Prison? I was um, uh, again. I, I I was very known as going into somebody's neighborhood, and on this particular day, it was it was daytime. I ended up in this little hole in the wall, uh, chicken spot, and I was eating in there. A little restaurant. Little restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And by Pico and. Uh, in Vermont, and uh, a meeting, and this is the time in L.A. where you could still drive around, and if you had a pickup truck, you could have people in the back of the, okay. of the bed. Okay. You, you remember those? Those okay. were the good old days. Okay. No seatbelts. <laughs> no seatbelts. It was so freedom. Uh, so I was in the in the restaurant, and uh, I get spotted by rival uh, gang members, 
and they're they're going to pay you back for crimes that you've done against their gangs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I I don't know if they they knew they knew me. They we all had we all dressed pretty much the same in Los Angeles. There was a certain attire uh, that. All of us in LA uh, Raider dressed out, like Raider outfit, Raider outfits, yeah, baggy pants. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you were always ironed up, you know, that kind of thing. So they spot me. They they jump out of this this truck, and they go into this restaurant. You're all by yourself. I'm by myself, and a fight ensues. Um, but they're there to kill you. I don't know if they're there to kill me, but that's that's what they want. They're going to kill you or bring you to an inch of of your life. Yeah, one that, or the that's other. yeah. And so, and this is payback. This is yeah. Uh, and again, I, I I don't know if they knew me, if they knew, you know, I'm in rival gang, gang territory as it is. Okay. And and it's not my neighborhood. It's it's uh it's, it's another neighborhood. So I'm there and and um, we start fighting. And I know that you know obviously I'm going to lose because there's more of them than me. I run out and. Uh, it was a guy that came in there, my victim uh, came in there with a crowbar, and it was in a normal crowbar. It was a very heavy metal crowbar, and he's coming after me. I go in the car. You was, get by them. They they kind of they kind of corner you, and you you I get through fo- the back. football moves. You you get out of there. Yeah, and I get to the car. Your car. In yeah, it was a stolen car, and and in the car I had a sawed-off shotgun. It was a very small one. Uh, it wasn't, you know, your normal, typical sawed of shotgun. It was just twelve gauge. Uh, most of the times when I did carry this, it, was, it looked like a pipe on one hand, and then the hammer and, and the trigger on the other side. Okay. And you kind of like snap it in. Uh, okay. I had rounds in my pocket. Uh, it was already loaded. When he comes into the car through the window to hit me with that crowbar. I had the shotgun in my hand already, and I fired, and I shot his face off. And um, his body landed outside of the car. I walked out of the car, around the car, and I put four more rounds in him. Four more rounds. And then I ran off, and this is broad daylight. And how, how old are you at this time? 16. You're, this is where I turned the page, and it says, then I turned six, 16 years of age. 16. So the police find out who you are and arrest you. Yeah. The, they, the, they find you. Yeah. Uh, there was a teacher uh, that was at my trial uh, who saw the whole thing. Uh, this Somebody happened, saw all this happen. This happened uh, less than, a, you know, like four blocks, three blocks away from a middle school. And uh, so she saw everything. And then was there a trial of any kind? Yeah, there was a trial. I, I went, uh, I was on the run for 21 days from that incident. And uh, they were raiding my home, my apartment. Uh, Mom and dad still together at this time? Mom and dad still together. I remember that night uh, I called home. Um, and my father answered the call, the phone. And, and I remember very like nothing had happened i he answers and i said hey uh is my mom there like nothing had happened and he cusses me out uh and what i didn't know is that they had raided the apartment already and they had hogtied him uh in this raid um i mean lapd uh, uh robbery homicide and crash i mean they 
pretty much searched everything in the apartment, um, turned the TVs upside down. It was a big, you know, back then you had those big TVs. They looked like pieces of furniture. Mm. They had opened the back of that. They had found so much, so much uh, other stuff in there. Uh, st- stolen stuff from robberies and home invasions. They weren't called home invasions at, the, at that time. So we're going to stop right here. I know this is a difficult place to stop in this story. This testimony, as we went into the room to film and to record, it, it, you couldn't do this in one segment. It, it, it had to be a two or three part story. And so this, this is the end of part one. This is the moment that he was in that little restaurant trying to eat and he was attacked by a gang, another gang in another part of the city, and it was either kill or be killed. And again, he's he's not even 16 or he is 16 years of age. He's just still a teenager growing up in this incredibly uh, violent home, watching his dad beat his mother, coming home, seeing the blood print of his mom down the sides of the wall. And it's hard to imagine at this point of this story, and stay with me on this. I know it's difficult to hear. It was difficult to read the book. But you have to know that this story turns into a story of redemption. And some of you are thinking, well, that it doesn't matter. I can't, I can't hear. I can't listen another. No, you need to come back and hear the story of redemption. That's the purpose of these stories, are to have you hear stories that you think this is impossible. How could God redeem a man like this? So, again, we're going to divide this up into three segments. This is the first episode, and uh, I hope you'll stay with us. Hit the subscribe button. You'll be the first to know when it comes out. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Hit the share button. Maybe pick up a copy of this book, start to read. I guarantee you that the end of the story, as bad as the first part of this story is, the second half, the third half, how this story ends, it, it, it's, it's something only God could do. And um, again, this is Dudley Rutherford, Godly Goosebumps. You can go to our website, godlygoosebumps.com. If you've got a story, if you've got a testimony, and you want to share that, send that story and we'll get a hold of you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's podcast. Be sure you tune in next week. Catch the second part of this incredible story, Casey Diaz, The Shot Caller. <laughs>